Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, we had great response to episodes one and two with Michael Dolce. Those episodes are still available. They're free. You can check them out. They're on SoundCloud, on iTunes. We're now on Stitcher, which is a great service. Works great on Android as well as iOS. Now, we're on Facebook, Guitar Speak Podcast, and that's a really great place to find um, some of the pictures we put up, some of the video links we put up that relate to our artists. So uh, like us on Facebook and share it around. Now, today I'm really proud to present an episode with a fantastic guitar player, best known for his fingerstyle acoustic work, but he plays a lot of other stuff besides that. I'm talking about Mr. Michael Fix. Now, Michael is a multiple golden guitar winner, as we'll find out. He's uh, one of the very few guitar players in the world that has been honoured by having Mayton name a signature series guitar after him. That's the Michael Fix 808 model. We'll find out how that came about. Michael is a prolific tourer. Aside from touring all around his home nation of Australia, he's uh, performed in South Africa, New Zealand, uh, Japan, all around Asia, and since 2004 he's been uh, making annual trips to Europe where he has a massive following, particularly in Germany, but also all around the the great continent of Europe. This September he's heading to Tuscany to run a guitar camp, and uh, following that he's got a whole bunch of dates in Germany uh, and more dates to come. Before we hear the interview with Michael, I thought we'd play uh, part of his music. Here's one of his original compositions, in fact that one him a Golden Guitar Award in 1999 for Best Instrumental. This is a piece called Mr. Wongolpong. Michael's also well known for tackling some really interesting covers. Uh, Check out this beautiful arrangement of David Bowie's Life on Mars. Fix, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Yeah, thanks. Great to talk to you. First up, Michael, what um, what led you to the guitar? It was uh, it was Top Forty Radio. I think was the the first inspiration at around the age of eleven, uh, and I, I guess it coincided with um, 
you know, growing out of childhood and uh, hitting puberty and there was there was a guitar in the house. So uh, I was sort of naturally drawn to the instrument anyway because my dad played a little bit. He played a few chords. And, okay, yeah. And could play uh, a few hits of the day. And um, uh, But it wasn't until I discovered um, the, the, the dial on the radio that changed the, the station from our local. I grew up in, in Wollongong yeah. and... Uh, at one point, I, I found or stumbled upon a station in Sydney called uh, 2SM, and they were the the sort of the hip and happening top forty radio yeah, station at the time of the early yeah, and <laughs> and uh, and that just opened up another world because until that point, I'd, I'd really been uh, influenced by you know what my parents were listening to at home, which. Um, well, you know, like I suppose any kid would say about their parents' of music of that era it was it was a bit daggy and <laughs> dated sounding, and and suddenly uh, I discovered the world of uh, Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, and and it was also the, the beginning of the um, singer songwriter era. So uh, you know, Cat Stevens and, and James Taylor, and there's a whole range of of music that was totally new to my ear, and um, and it. It all featured uh, guitar, and and it, whether it was electric guitar or acoustic guitar, it didn't matter to me. It was just the sound of that instrument that that seemed to be so prominent on the airwaves that that really touched me. And um, it was a particular song actually that that um, that hit the mark straight up, and that was um, 1971. It was Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool. Oh, okay, yeah, and, awesome. Yeah, and. Uh, it's, uh, it was the sound of those Ross Wilson and Ross Hannaford and uh, those electric guitars coming out through a, a two-inch AM radio speaker yep, that yep. Uh, just just hit me right in the chest and uh, yeah, that was that was really the the, the beginning and uh, fortunately um, you know I was very young but uh, I, I had uh, some older older brother figures in my life so mm-hmm. some older guys who were already playing guitar and who could um, who would show me stuff, and uh, that pretty much set the pattern for the rest of my life. Is always look for people who are better than you, and um, and don't be afraid to to ask. <laughs> I've read that you're playing gigs by the time you're twelve. You must have had a fairly quick learning curve to be to be performing. What what sort of gigs were you doing at age twelve? Well, it was probably uh, I think at age thirteen was the first um, paid gig with a, wow. with a my, my sort of garage band. Yeah. Of, of the time, bunch of school friends. Um, it was a it was a time uh, just to put it in context uh, for the listeners. The nineteen seventies, um, live music was so prominent and so um, important. It, it was everywhere, every bar and club and uh, restaurant and cafe and nightclub. You know, everywhere was live music, and uh, and it wasn't that that I was some kind of, you know, child genius. Um, it was it was the fact that there was so much work around that even a bunch of school kids from, you know, age 13, 14, 15 years old could get some paying gigs. Wow. It's, it's almost yeah. impossible to imagine these days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but Wollongong is a very multicultural town, and um, uh, I, I hooked up with a couple of school friends. Uh, they were older than me, and, and they were Italians, and they had connections to the local uh, Italian community and they would have regular dances and um, we started uh, getting booked uh, to, to play their um, their dances. Fantastic. It was a great way to meet, meet girls too. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What, um, what, what kind of tunes were you playing at these gigs? Um, sort of hit, hits of the day. Um, yeah. 
some of the radio hits, but also music uh, that was known as continental music, which was really um, music from the continent, continents being Europe. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so to, to play a lot of these, um, it wasn't just Italian dancers. Later on, um, you know, with Wollongong's multicultural community, there, there were clubs for every, uh, every ethnic group. So I remember playing the German club, the Italian club, the Spanish club, the Portuguese club, wow. the Ukrainian yeah. club. You know, and, and and all these uh, all these audiences um, had uh, different tastes in music. So whatever band I was in, they would always have a. There would always be somebody in that band who was either Spanish or Italian, or okay, you know, would have yeah. uh, would import music from from the country. So it might be hits that were on the radio in Europe, but um, weren't really that well known here. So. It, it certainly broadened my, my horizon yeah. to, uh, yeah. to be playing in, in bands at that time. Wow. That, I mean, that's a fantastic opportunity to um, not only get a band together at such a young age, but to be um, getting across such a broad range of material. And I guess from there, it, it, I can see, looking over your career, you've always had a very um, eclectic you know, repertoire and, and, and with the bands and things you've done. Yeah, eclectic and diverse is certainly <laughs> a couple of ways of describing it. And you know, it never occurred to me that um, uh, that there was anything unusual about that. Um, yeah. And later on, later on in life, I, I started to think about um, my music as, as more of a as a career path. And I, and I started to wonder uh, maybe I should be focusing on something. You know, all the great players are known as you know BB King is a great. He's the blues guy and. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, you know, you have every, every one seemed to have their thing, and I'm thinking, what's what's mine? You know, I, I seem to be all over the shop here. I'm I'm playing in a rock band one night, and then I'm playing in a uh, bossa novas in a in a cocktail bar the next night, and yeah. you know, all this uh, created a little bit of confusion for me. But um, um, one one of my ambitions in my late teens was uh, to to get into session work. Yeah. And um, in in the 1980s, um, recording sessions was still a uh, was still a very thriving uh, business. So this was playing on commercials and um, and playing on albums for other people. And they were always in, in the big studios. It was the before home studios. Yeah, sure. And it, it was really the the place where um, you know the the people that I perceived as being the the really accomplished players were the guys doing the sessions. Um, and I thought I was well suited for that life, not not because I considered myself accomplished, but because I had such a broad experience in, uh, uh, of music. And um, I, I figured, gee, if somebody books me for a Latin American session or a rock session or acoustic or electric, whatever it is, I, I've kind of had some experience in it. And I did actually get into that world and uh, and really enjoyed it. And it's still it's still a part of what I do these days. And and I still love it. People that are often very surprised because I'm, I'm kind of known now as the acoustic guitar guy. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, I can, uh, people get surprised if uh, they find out, you know, I've played, be it banjo or be it, you know, some rock, heavy rock guitar or whatever mm -hmm. it is. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. that's all been part of my experience. Great. So, um, so when you, you were still in Wollongong in your late teens, when did you move to Sydney? Was that to pursue more gigs and, and more sessions? Uh, yeah, I moved up to Sydney um, when I turned 21. Mm -hmm. And uh, by that time, I was sort of traveling to Sydney fairly regularly. Um, I kind of knew 
that I, I had to uh, get out of Wollongong. I was very curious about what was going on in the in the wider world. And back in those days, it seemed like it was only um, 90 kilometres, but it, it seemed like such a big step. Um, but I, I hooked up with uh, Tommy Emmanuel and uh, uh, started to have some... Well, they were kind of lessons. Um, when I say kind of lessons, they were really, we, we would get together and he would just play stuff for me and I would be just totally bowled over and and um, record everything and uh-huh. yeah and you know try and and learn stuff that way so this is um, but, this is the early 80s um, I'm yeah sort of guessing yeah. yeah so how did you how did you come in contact with him in the first place there was a, a venue in Sydney called the musicians club yeah um, in Cleveland Street I think it was yeah a, yeah yeah I know it fantastic venue and um um, I started going regularly. It just seemed like a sensible thing to do if you're going to meet musicians, just yeah. go to a musician's club. <laughs> and there were always fantastic bands. And there was, one night was uh, there was a group playing Doug Parkinson and the Southern Star Band. Oh, okay, yep. And uh, that's the first time I saw Tommy play. He was playing electric guitar. Okay. And, uh, yeah. and I, I instantly heard a whole bunch of sounds and influences that were, were new to me. And um, as I found out later, you know, Tommy was, when he was improvising, that he was bringing in a bit of Django, a bit of Joe Pass, a bit of George Benson. There's all this stuff that was kind of pretty new and fresh for me. Okay, yep. And, um, but what knocked me out was um, when the band took a break, he uh, he came out uh, on, on stage with an acoustic guitar and sat down and played a couple of Beatles tunes. Oh, great. Um, just unaccompanied. And, uh, and that was a sort of a big um, light bulb moment for me. It was um, up until that point, my experience of solo acoustic guitar was more the, the classical world. Okay, yep, um, yep. And, uh, and then to see somebody playing the music that I loved, some, you know, Beatles music, and, and seeing the way the audience reacted to that, it was, uh, it, it kind of, uh, the, the light bulb came on and it was like, Hey, this is what I could do with my life. This is where, where I'm heading. You know, it was in that time of of uh, all the trying to figure out what my path was going to be, and it really started at, at that that night in the musicians' club. Wow, fantastic! So, um, so you ended up so you, you took some lessons, or uh, like I've heard Tommy described as a mentor to you. Would you would you see it that way? Yeah, I I, I would say um, a mentor or a, another older brother figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy's three years older than me, and uh, by by that stage, when he was in his early twenties, um, he, he already had such a, a huge range of experience and uh, so many songs and so many gigs under his belt. And um, yeah, he kind of uh, well, he encouraged me to move to Sydney. Um, I, I stayed with him for for a little while while I found a, my own place to live. So we ended up living quite close to each other. Okay. And um, and I would drive him around to sessions, so he he would introduce me to, to some of the producers, and mm-hmm. um, uh, but and the whole time he's he's practicing and playing and and, and showing me stuff, and we're jamming, and uh, you know it's just incredible, uh, incredibly um, inspiring time, and um, and of course it was a that era in my life when. Um, I didn't. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a, mor- a mortgage. Yeah. I just yeah. had tons of time uh, to dedicate to the guitar. So, you know, I was constantly inspired, but I also had all the time and energy to uh, 
put into so it. So is that when you started um, like finger style on a on a steel string? Did you did you jump over to that? String? Yeah, yeah. I I, um, I got into uh, well, he, he introduced me to the music of Chet Atkins. Okay. Yeah. And um, and Jerry Reed and those sort of guys, and that was all brand new. But uh, when I heard that style, and I I realised the potential and what could what I could do with it. Um, I just got totally hooked and uh, Tommy had hundreds of records and he would lend me the, the records and, and I'd go away and just play for 12 hours a day and learn wow. pieces and then I'd go back and play them for him and then he'd show me all the stuff I was doing wrong. And <laughs> <laughs> So it, it, it took took quite a while. I mean, uh, finger style, that sort of Chet Atkins thing, it's a very um, sophisticated technique and uh, it took quite a while um, before I had the confidence to uh, to sort of a set together um, but I, I was playing a lot I was playing in, in bands and in duos and, and I would take any opportunity to play a piece solo just to just to get that that feeling you know and see how yeah, I was right. traveling with that yeah so had you been you mentioned classical guitar was your your sort of first reference to solo acoustic guitar were you playing classical guitar before this time I, I had Played a little bit uh, in my teenage years. I had a, a guitar teacher. Um, you know, he's a regular Thursday afternoon half-hour guitar lesson. Yeah. He was a great, great teacher. He was a jazz guy, and he also played classical. and um, And he he took me through through some pieces. So I, I probably I dabbled in it, like I did with so many things that it was I sort of dabbled in it. <laughs> but I realized uh, that the world, the classical guitar world, is a very, very disciplined world, and um, uh, I knew I, I couldn't stick at it. it. There were too many other sounds and influences that yeah, were yeah. that were calling me. Okay, awesome. So I guess then that was the so the whole experience with Tommy and and digging the Chet Atkins. That was probably your first serious go at I guess working on um, independent parts and yeah, uh, yeah, sort of polyphonic kind of approach. That's awesome. So in um. I think it was 1984. You joined the band Hattrick. Is that is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cool. And what what kind of material were you doing there? Well, the, the, that was a band playing um, a very eclectic mix of stuff, so it really suited me very well. Um, there were two violins in the band, and um, the band had a, had a had a repertoire of that consisted of um, sort of Celtic uh, Celtic rock. Steel I Span and Fairport Convention, but all, but also classical pieces, like the, the sort of classical chart buster ones that everybody knows, the Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, Bach, um, but done in a kind of a, a rock style. It was guitar, bass and drums and two violins. And um, it was a really fun band to, to play in. The music was... Um, was often quite complex, but but it was always fun, and uh, it was very unique and different. And the audiences connected with the, uh, particularly with the classical stuff, because uh, we we do it with a lot of humour as well. To me, the my philosophy is is still to this day. It's, the genre doesn't doesn't matter to me. If there's if there's a melody and there's a groove, um, that's that's it. I'm I'm there, and so it, it never bothered me if it was classical or if it was um you know heavy rock or whatever it was there, mm-hmm. there had to be a melody there and there had to be some kind of groove and and uh you know there's 
great classical composers. They they knew how to write a great tune. Yeah, definitely. And and we we, we would sort of um, rock rock them up a bit and nice. uh, have a bit of fun with the arrangements. That's cool. I often think of Beethoven as um, as like a riff writer. He often, he would often write very short riffs and sequences yeah. for, for forever. But they they'd be these very heavy kind of kind of riffs. We we playing yeah. electric or acoustic in Hattrick? Uh, both. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And what and, sort of gear uh, were you running back then? What sort of gear? Yeah. What, what was your rig? Um, I was playing um, a Fender Telecaster mm-hmm. and uh, and a Fender amp um, and uh, just a few basic pedals, a tube screamer and a delay pedal and a Boss chorus, the sort of pretty standard sort of stuff for for the time. And uh, and as far as acoustic guitars, um, I hadn't gotten into the maintenance at that stage, and it was still very difficult to find uh, an acoustic guitar that amplified really well, that also sounded good acoustically. Um, so I was playing a kind of a, um, a semi-hollow body acoustic guitar made by Ibanez, oh, okay. um, yep. sort of a very thin body guitar, um, mm-hmm. which had virtually no acoustic sound but um, okay, yep. amplified reasonably well and you could get it quite loud without feedback and yeah sure. and, and that so this is in the 80s and then uh, Takamine came in and they probably had the first or Ovation and Takamine had the first um, sort of half decent uh, pickup systems but um, they still weren't that suitable for uh, for rock gigs and uh, it was pretty common in that era to see people with their Takamine guitars absolutely stuffed full of uh, cotton wool or felt or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, uh, yeah, it wasn't until uh, about 1990 that that I got my first Mason and they just uh, came out with this new pickup system and it was the first guitar that I I thought, this is a a guitar I can take to a recording session but I can also use it on stage. You've, uh, you've ended up with your own Maton signature model, weren't you? So you're in a very select um, band of musicians. That's the uh, that's based on the 808 model, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the 808 with a, with a cutaway. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. And and what did um when when did that happen? When so you you'd probably been playing Matons for some time. Then when did they approach you about making a signature model? Um, in uh 2003, um, I hooked up with a, a guy called Alan Samen, who was the, at the time, the uh, Maton distributor in Italy. So he'd set up a company in Italy, and um, as part of uh, promoting the guitars, he he was bringing Australian guitar players over. So he had uh, Tommy went over and did a tour in Italy, and um, mm-hmm. I think even Phil Emanuel uh, went as well. And in 2004, um, he invited me to uh, to go over, which basically meant going and, and doing some workshops in music stores and playing at a, a few guitar festivals yeah. and uh, sitting on the stand and demonstrating and all that sort of thing. Yeah, right. Um, but, um, yeah, so he asked me in 2003 if I'd be interested to do that and I said, yes, of course. And then he said, um, well, why don't we see if we can... Um, if we can get a, a signature guitar that we can be promoting as well so that's the idea sort of came actually came from from uh, Alan Samen so uh, um, he spoke to Mason and they they contacted me and so the, the idea was the model was um, delivered in time for my first uh, Italy tour and um, so they could 
introduced me and the Maiden guitars and the signature model guitar. Right, fantastic. Um, at the same time, so it was a kind of a marketing move as well. Sure, uh, it worked really well because the um, that uh, this model guitar is is a really good seller in in Europe. Um, so, Maitens are quite hard to find and quite expensive in Europe because of the uh, the dollar difference. Sure. Yes, um, but the people who are really keen on them, they tend to be the pro or semi pro players. And they'll buy either the, the Tommy Emanuel model or the Michael Fix model. That's great. That's so, fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a total buzz as I'm traveling yeah. around in, in Europe and have people coming out or coming out for me to, to sign their guitars. And yeah, brilliant. Wow. Fantastic. The, um, and it's obviously gone well because um, Maiton are still running that line. So it's been, been part of their lineup for quite a while now. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, since 2004. Great. Now, speaking of 2004, we've sort of jumped ahead a couple of decades, so I might backtrack shortly. But um, was that the start of your of building your overseas audience? Because since around that time, it seems like you, you've built up quite a following in uh, in Europe. Yeah, the, the, it really started with that first uh, tour in Italy, and the uh, the, the breakthrough came um, when I, I decided I would um, uh, fly over to Germany um, just from. From where I was in Italy into Germany, it was only like an hour flight, um, and primarily to to visit some uh, relations, uh, some relatives that I hadn't seen for many many years, uh, who live in Germany okay. in, a, in a town a town called Dortmund, and um, and if, this is only just a few months before the the trip, and I'm, I'm sitting here at home thinking to myself, um, well, I'm going to be in Germany, I'm going to have all my gear with me, so. Uh, I should see if I can find a gig. So I did a bit of Googling and mm-hmm. discovered that on the exact weekend uh, that I was going to be in Dortmund, um, there was a guitar festival in that town. And okay. not, a, not not only that, but the headliner was Tommy. Fantastic. <laughs> so, How's the timing? The timing, unbelievable. So <laughs> to cut a long story short, um, Tommy invited me to play on his show, um, the the. Uh, the, the festival organizer gave me a few gigs as well at very short notice and um, it was really uh, it was like like anywhere I guess the community of, of people who were who were into particular style of music like like acoustic fingerstyle guitar yeah. there were, there were a lot of festival uh, and, and event organizers at, at that festival and um, they saw me play, and afterwards it was like, well, if you know, if you're ever coming back to to Germany, here's my card. I, I run a little festival here, or I run a venue there. Great. And right. um, I just built the whole Germany network from this one festival, and it's just um, grown, keeps growing. Um, and that was, that was so that's twelve years ago, and I was I was making two trips a year. Uh-huh. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, it's been great. That's cool. Like, like on your website, it. Uh... It asked the um, viewers of your website, "Do you want the do you want the English site or do you want the Deutsch site?" So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good to see. So, um, I have jumped ahead a little bit, so probably about twenty years or so. So, um, your solo career probably started early early nineties, somewhere around. Yeah, the yeah. So, from that, I guess the hat trick was sort of the mid eighties. So, you were developing your your solo work. Uh, what else was happening around that time? Uh, the 80s was um, was really uh, was was hat trick. It was a six night a week um, gig wow. We, we, wow. that went right through to uh, to the 
to the end of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in the daytime, I was doing some sessions and um, Hattrick would... would we were doing our own recordings as well. It was the very beginning of the, the home studio thing, so I was starting to, to get into that and yeah, right. bought a bought an track tape machine and, and some gear and sort of set up a studio at home, and I started um, writing music. Um, yeah, original, my first sort of attempts at uh, original compositions, that, that was in the 80s as well, so okay. that was kind of a quite an important time. Yeah. And um, you were touring with Graham Connors for a while in the in the nineties. Yeah, that came then um, after Hattrick uh, finished up around about nineteen ninety. Um, I think in the same year, um, I got a call from singer songwriter Graham Connors, who um, he he was already uh, getting quite well known as a songwriter, and um, I'd been some of the sessions that I'd been doing, uh, people were recording Graham Connors songs. And, um, and of course, he happened to hear them. Uh, and uh, then I got a call from him out of the blue one day. I didn't really know who he was. And he, he said, I've heard you play guitar. You've, you've played on, listed a you know, number of songs and, mm-hmm. um, and said, I'm the guy that wrote them and I'm putting a band <laughs> together and I'm going on tour. That's great. And uh, it was, it was a, a really good time for, for Graham. He, was, he, he had a, an album out called North. That uh, was very popular, and he uh, he had a bit of a, a television um, profile as well, yeah. and um, so the uh, sort of jumped straight into this kind of touring concert uh, band. We were playing um, Queensland, particularly they, they were the largest gigs. They were like entertainment center style okay. gigs. Yeah. Um, so it was a, a really great experience to be playing in that uh, theater concert environment, and. Um, when I, I, I released my first album in 1991 or 92, and um, Graham gave me the opportunity to present uh, a couple of pieces uh, solo during the show. So oh, that's great. That, that kind of really kicked me off. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I think before you know it, you were, you were collecting Golden Guitar Awards for Instrumental of the Year. I think, uh, I believe you got three of those. Yeah, yeah. The, the um, well, the, the, I started recording in 91, and um, so each year I, I would, um, because of the connection with the country music scene through yeah, Graham. Through Graham, yeah. Yeah, I sort of uh, got to know some people and, and learned how, how it all works, and, and I started entering tracks into the, um, into the awards each year. Mm-hmm. And so I was a finalist for about, I think, eight years in a row and before I, I won the first oh, okay. uh, Golden Guitar and that was in 99. Okay, so it was an overnight success that took, you know, oh, no, 10 years. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to pay my dues in Tamworth. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think I think um, Keith Urban's the only other musician to have three three Golden Guitars for, for, um, for the best instrumental tracks. So that's... Yeah, and, and cool uh, the strange thing about Keith's is that two of those were for the same track, but, oh really? <laughs> yeah, it's a little controversial yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I guess the awards have um, they've always had a bit of controversy somewhere. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've got three outright tracks. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a peer award, isn't it? It's not. It's not like a yeah. So a popular um, a popular vote is it? It's it's your peers in the industry voting. So that must be a pretty special thing. Yeah, yeah. It 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 certainly was. It was a great sense of anticipation as each year rolled by and uh you know miss out again but 
<laughs> yeah, it was very, it was, it was very cool, and and that was a really great uh, era of, of country music in Australia too, and the uh, uh, profile and exposure of country music artists was um, was high, and uh, the the awards were being tele- televised and yeah, all this sort yeah. of thing. Mm. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of momentum. Those um, people. No, he's like James Blundell, uh, Lee Kernigan. Garth Porter was, I think, just kicking in as a, a producer. And yeah, yeah, that's right. Cleaning up. So, yeah, brilliant. Um, I was wondering if we talk about your technique for a little while. Um, do you, Have you always used a thumb pick when you're, particularly with your your, um, your solo acoustic stuff? That seems to be important. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't start using a thumb pick until I was in my uh, early 20s and um, and got hooked into the music of Chet Atkins. Cause yeah, that's, uh, so you really need it for uh, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was very much a part of the sound and style and I, I wanted to, to to make it authentic and it took a long time to get comfortable uh, with a thumb pick, uh, yeah. a very long time, in fact. Um, but but now it's um, it feels pretty comfortable, um, but I'll, I'll often, depending on, on what's required, I'll, I'll play just finger style without a thumb pick or or sometimes flat picking as well, which is kind of how I started playing. Okay, yeah. So with the flat, so I mix it up. Sure. So with the flat picking, would you? I guess you'd employ some hybrid picking. So picking. Yeah, uh, it, it it really comes down to the the choice comes down to what sort of attack I want on on a note. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm playing something something like um, bluegrass, for example, you. Uh, I, I actually feel more comfortable playing it finger style. I've got a better facility and oh, can okay. play cleaner, cleaner and faster finger style. But you need the attack on the notes that you get from a pick. So finger style doesn't sound. If you want an authentic bluegrass sound, it's not quite the right, the right sound. Yep. And if I want a very warm, uh, jazzy sort of sound, I'll just go, you know, totally naked flesh. Yeah, and sure. It's a much softer attack on the strings. Yeah, so I was going to say, I've, I've sort of built up calluses when I'm playing a, a lot. I've, I've got calluses on my fingertips, and I can manipulate that a little bit too. So by just by curling my finger around a bit, I can catch more of the callus and, and have more attack on the note. Yeah, cool. It's, it's great to have all those things in your arsenal. And um, I mean, I've seen some of you playing when, again, if you're on a thumb pick, sometimes you'll just clamp down on it like a flat pick if you're doing really kind of yeah. fast stuff. I think like... Um, yeah. Like in Takata, for example, that's is that a flat pick for that? I think. And uh, that, yeah, that's a thumb pick I'm using on that. Sorry, a thumb pick. Yeah, and then you, you yeah. just grab on when you're doing those really fast, alternate picking sort of things. Mm. How do you um, how do you go about choosing or arranging new pieces? Because you'll often you've got pieces that that sort of live in, in in the guitar's repertoire, but more often than not, you you're pulling stuff from outside. So, um, like you're doing pop tunes, you're doing Beatles songs, um, classical repertoire. Yeah. Um, but how do you do? You have a method? Do you have some some? Yes, I do. Yeah, uh, it's a good question, um, uh, and it is it is something I think about when I'm. Uh, Choosing a repertoire, um, as I said earlier, melody, uh, something's got to have a strong melody, got to have a groove, and 
there, there is a third element uh, when I'm choosing a tune, and that is, um, has this been done to death, or are a lot of my, my peers doing the same tune? Because yeah. um, if, if they are, you know, I'm sort of looking, always looking to do something that's a little bit outside the box, a little sure. bit unexpected and original. So, so I'll often um, will will jump onto YouTube if I if I think of a tune and go, oh, this this would be great. I'd love to do an arrangement of whatever it is, particularly mm-hmm. Beatles, say a Beatles song, because everyone's done those. Sure. And I'll have a bit of a look on YouTube to see if um, uh, any of the the players who are on the touring circuit have covered it and have a, you know, have a definitive cover of it. And if they do, then I kind of stay away from it. And I think, okay, that person's known for that, that arrangement. It's a bit like, like Carter is kind of my arrangement. And um, I, I'm only aware of one other player uh, who's who's performing it, and and they're not sort of touring on the circuit that I'm touring on. So yep. it's sort of my thing, and yeah, uh, yeah. helps di- differentiate me. Um, and another one for an example, uh, just a recent example, I've just put together an arrangement of um, MacArthur Park with that oh, okay. Jim, Jimmy Webb song. It was yeah, a yeah. hit for Richard Harris in the '60s. It's mm-hmm. like an epic, epic orchestral yes, thing. Yes, yes. And uh, I've always wanted to do it. It's very complex. And uh, well, before I'm going to spend that amount of time, uh, let's just have a look if anybody else has done it. And to my surprise, I couldn't find anyone else who's covered that that tune. Um, well, not on YouTube anyway. Um, so I felt comfortable that uh, when I go out there and play it, people aren't going to sit there and go, oh, I saw so-and-so play that or yeah, I saw Tommy sure. play it. You know? yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like to have a sense of I'm doing something that's a little bit different. Sure. Do you um do you ever do you delve into alternate tunings to make a song work better? Some of the some of the clips I've seen of you and some of your performances I've seen, you seem to be in standard for a lot of the time. Do you ever do you ever tweak the tuning? Uh, I I do. A, a common one that I use is the uh, the E string down a tone to D. Yep. Yep. Um, and so that's uh, harder. That's like perfect. Hey. That, Sorry, for Takata, like, like, like Takata, yes, the D minor exactly. tune. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I won't go too far into open tunings. Um, mainly, the reason is a very practical one. Um, in that, when I'm touring, I'm generally travelling with one guitar. Yeah. Okay. And um, I'm very conscious of standing on stage, uh, tuning in between songs, and then having to tune back up again. Yeah. yeah sure. Um, which is if you're playing for a guitar crowd, they understand what's going on. But if you're playing for the general public uh, or the, you know, the wives of the guitar players will sit there and go, what's wrong with his guitar? He's always fiddling around with it. <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very uh, stagecraft thing for me. Is, uh, so if I, if I, I do have a, a thing like um, an arrangement of Bolero, which is an open tuning. And uh, I sometimes... Yeah, I heard that. I was wondering how you're doing that. Yeah, so in a gig, I'll, I might save that for, I'll either open a set with it, mm-hmm. so I only have to tune once when I've finished, um, or I'll use it as an encore piece so I can rush off the stage, detune the guitar off stage and come back on. And okay, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. How, um, how are you tuning your guitar for that piece? That's uh, C, G, from low to high, C, uh-huh. G, C, G, B, E. Wow, that's cool. It's like a C major seven. C major seven, yeah, exactly. So the top 
top three strings are standard. The, the bass strings are CGC. Okay, so you got some kind of familiar. Well, I mean, obviously you work up the piece, but you got some familiar. Yeah. Uh, territory up top, and then yeah, yes. great. I think it's beautiful. I think tuning down to C, um, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful sound. If your guitar is up for it, do you have? Um, do you use heavier? I guess if you're only on one guitar, you you stick to a string gauge. What what gauge would you use? I'm using um, 12 to 53s. Okay, yeah. And they, um, they get down to C okay? Uh, yeah, but I, I have to... I, I play with a slight mute on uh, on the bass strings all the time. Oh, okay. um, I've, I've only discovered this fairly recently, that it's um, that it's such an integral part of my technique. I've, I've nearly always got part of the palm of my hand uh, is is resting on the bass string sometimes okay. really really lightly, yep. but that way I can I can also get the action of the guitar very low and you not you don't really hear the buzzing because I'm I'm just dampening the whole thing a little bit. Sure, sure. And I think it's just it's come out of playing amplified, playing through big PA systems where it's really easy for everything to just kind of get away from you. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Especially that bottom end. Hey, that's the uh, yeah. That's the boom that can take off. What do you yeah. um? Cool. So you've got the music. What other techniques have you used um, to to amplify the guitar? Like to to make it actually work in a big loud room. Are you, are you using? Are you always using the PA, or do you use your own amps when you can? I, I use my own amp as a as a monitor. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, it's an AER, yeah, and great. Um, it's just a really great little amp to have on stage, and it and it's very comfortable and secure to have have my own sound. And I can just run um, a cable out at the back of that straight into the PA, so it it serves as a DI box as well. As a, as, okay. So I treat it like a monitor. Yeah, cool. Um, and it's it's really great for the situations where, um, say, you're playing at a festival and you have fairly short changeover times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I discovered early on that a lot of the festival. Uh, sound guys, they might be use of rock and roll sound guys. They'll tune the monitors for a vocal. Okay, yeah. So it'll have a lot of bass and a lot of treble, yeah. and um, and not a lot of mid range. But the acoustic guitar is needs mid range. Yeah, that's where so, it is. Yeah, so instead of wasting time um, with with the monitors, um, yeah. they, I've got my monitor on stage. All I have to do is turn it up and tell them that that's see the signal I'm giving them. Yeah, just turn that up. That's Great. the sound. That's easy. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested to see last year your um, your son Adrian joined you on a European tour. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, he, uh, my my son Adrian is a, and uh, he's at a point where he was wondering. Uh, he was keen to do music, but wasn't sure whether the the whole sort of lifestyle of being a musician was going to work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, "Well, come on tour." find out so he had a he had a quite a nice sort of deluxe europe tour and he was playing percussion <laughs> that's a good way to it. yeah yeah there's no no years of playing smelly pups for him <laughs> <laughs> no sticky carpets <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, so uh yeah he came it was a 10-week tour it was quite a quite a long grueling tour uh and he, he did great um i really loved having him on stage and having that sort of uh he's a very natural intuitive um percussionist and he feels time and tempo exactly the same way that I do. Um, so it's extremely comfortable and um, 
uh, I miss him a bit now, and <laughs> it took me a little while to readjust. Yeah, right. That's but, cool. Uh, yeah. Wow. yeah, he decided that the lifestyle wasn't for him. He's going back to uni. Okay, yeah. But that must be a pretty special time to share as a, as a father and a son to be able to... Uh, oh, yeah. To Definitely, yeah. Brilliant. So what's on for the rest of um, 2016? I see you've got a bunch of gigs and collaborations coming up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love working with singers. Um, I suppose when it... When it comes down to it my, my passion is uh, are songs I, I just love songs and um, when I meet a singer who can really sing uh, you know just that that's a great great scenario and um, uh, I, I love being in that supportive role I've, I've always loved being a rhythm guy mm-hmm. and um, uh, so I'm hooking up with um, a, a lady from the Isle of Man Christine Collister we're doing some gigs throughout April uh, as a kind of a bit of a, a trial because we, we'd like to our plan is to push this a bit further next year and do some festivals but we're just doing some some fairly low-key gigs just to get the uh, the repertoire together and get it off okay. the ground and um it's working great she she was a singer with richard thompson in the 80s okay, and, okay, uh, yeah. got an amazing voice and then in in june i'm hooking up with an old buddy of mine a guy called darren coggan who mm-hmm. um singer-songwriter but has come from a, a very theatrical uh, background uh, putting together um, shows that have done very very well uh, as, as an actor and also a TV presenter um, but, uh, he, he's a great singer and a great player and um, we have a lot of shared sort of musical interests and musical history so we're, we're putting together a, a show and um, uh, basing it on um, some of our favorite music so there's, there's going to be Beatles there's going to be Cat Stevens there's, there's going to be uh, Jimmy Webb songs it's Bruce Springsteen you know all our sort of pick the eyes out of our favorites and, mm-hmm. and arrange it for two guitars and two voices great sounds like fun yeah and then there's the solo tour in Europe again that's always in September October yep did I read correctly you're you're running a guitar camp in Tuscany in September yeah yeah, that's that's going to be the beginning of that uh, that tour. That's cool. with uh, two great players, um, Andrea Valeri. He's he's been to Australia a couple of times. Okay. He's a, um, a wonderful young talent, and uh, Adam Rafferty, who is a New York uh, jazz guy who's gotten into the fingerstyle guitar world. He's got a, quite a unique approach as well. So the three of us are presenting this workshop, and we can uh, we can speak English, German, and Italian between the three of us. So. <laughs> You should pull a lot of gigs. You should be fine between you guys. That's great. You um, you do a lot of guitar um, clinics. Yeah, it's it's an increasing increasingly uh, important part of what I do, and and very enjoyable too. I really like sharing knowledge, and uh, I, I like the the idea of being able to hand back some of the stuff that's been or all of the stuff that's been shown to me over the years, and yeah, uh, yeah. some of the accumulated wisdom, if I have any. I guess on that note, I'd encourage everyone to check out your website. Um, is that michaelfix.com? Yeah. That's the one. That's the nice one, yeah. And there's stacks of great stuff on there, stacks of uh, great clips and uh, resources and, and uh, performances and things. So, Yeah, and I've got a, like a newsletter sign-up box, and uh, if you add your email address, you, address, you get a, um, an MP3 and a... Uh, a tab of a of a blues piece that uh, that I've written that I use as an exercise in my clinics. So. Oh, fantastic! 
Great, great. Well, yeah, well, that sounds like a great resource for guitarists to get stuck into. Fantastic. All right, so Michael, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. It's great to talk to you. Thanks, Michael. Catch you later on. So there you have it. That's the Guitar Speak interview with Michael Fix. I really enjoyed speaking to Michael. Really great guy, really great, amazing guitar player. Has built a fantastic career over many, many years and is still going strong. You should definitely check out his website, michaelfix.com. Heaps of good stuff on there. Not least of all, all the dates of his gigs and clinics. Access to all his recordings. And uh, he's got a really cool YouTube channel as well. Michael Fix TV. Michael's going to play us out with his track, Silvertop Blues. It's the music you're hearing right now. It's from his 2014 album, Lines and Spaces. So thanks for joining us at the Guitar Speak podcast. Remember, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes. We're on Stitcher, Facebook. You can email us, guitarspeakpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, see you next time.